On today's episode, lateral hip pain and glute strengthening with Benoit Matthew. Welcome to the Run Smarter Podcast, the podcast helping you overcome your current and future running injuries by educating and transforming you into a healthier, stronger, smarter runner. If you're like me, running is life, but more often than not, injuries disrupt this lifestyle. And once you are injured, you're looking for answers and met with bad advice and conflicting messages circulating the running community. The world shouldn't be like this. You deserve to run injury-free and have access to the right information. That's why I've made it my mission to bring clarity and control to every runner. My name is Brody Sharp. I'm a physiotherapist, a former chronic injury sufferer, and your podcast host. I am excited that you have found this podcast and by default become the Run Smarter Scholar. So let's work together to overcome your injury, restore your confidence, and start spreading the right information back into your running community. So let's begin today's lesson. Okay, welcome back to another episode. Today we have Benoit Matthew on. Uh, he is very active on Twitter. I've been following him for a long time. He is a um, advanced practice physio. He's a sonographer, shockwave specialist, and he has a particular interest in the hip and groin and also around running injuries. So a perfect man to have on to discuss today's topic. Um we didn't actually talk about it too much in the actual podcast recording, so I'll do it now. Um, lateral hip pain is our main topic of discussion, and lateral hip pain is more described as pain on the outermost part of the hip. So if you do have hip pain that's more at the front or more in the the back, like the butt fold or the... Um, the central kind of buttock area. That's not really what we're referring to or honing in on on today's topic. We're more referring to that pain that sort of surrounds what we call the greater trochanter, which is that bony prominence on the outermost part of your hip. We're going to talk about uh, what causes it, what causes it in runners, what we should avoid once it's irritated, uh, what are some early and more advanced uh, options for overcoming this injury. We delve into like strengthening. We delve into if stretching is of benefit. We talk about um, what it means when you're told your glutes aren't firing or you have ITB tightness. Um, and then some good strengthening exercises later in rehab, like some plyometrics and tips around that. Um, Benoit has also got a, um, has just released a symposium. It's an online symposium called the Masters Athlete Symposium has tons of great uh, guest speakers, which we delve into in the interview as well. So um, hear more about that. If you are interested, uh, Benoit has been generous enough to give us a discount code for 25% off if you wanted to uh, get all that content online. I've listened to it myself. Uh, I, I signed up um, while it was live and just amazing content. If you love this podcast and you love the content it delivers, you're going to love that symposium targeted around the master's athlete. Um, and I'll discuss some of the uh, guests that they do have on that online symposium in the interview itself, because there are some past um, guests that I've had on the podcast, which feature in that online course. So um, I'll tell you the code now. Let me just pull up this email. It is um, benbrad25off 
And so you just complete that at checkout and you get 25% off the discount uh, for the discount rate. It is 12 month access to 22 hours of video, audio, and an, a free ebook, um, all that kind of stuff. And there's also more. So Ben Brad 25 off, I'll include that in the show notes. I'll also include the link to the course and, um, yeah, just, just grab all those, sign up and get 25% off. So thanks, Benoit, for that. Um, before we dive into today's episode, a bit of an update on me. <laughs> I know last episode I was going to talk about um, a bit more about my running journey and what I'm implementing right now to help with my running. And last time I mentioned I did get a little, I have been getting a little bit of heel pain and monitoring the, the morning stiffness. I'm not entirely sure what it is. It feels a little bit... Um, sharper and I have had plantar fasciitis in the past and it doesn't really feel like that but monitoring it um, and it, all of a sudden uh, it seems like the last three mornings or so the pain levels are down to maybe a one out of ten and it probably lasts about five minutes and so I've spent the last three days four days uh, trialing out some running and last time we recorded, I went for, I was just doing bike rides because I knew that it would be totally fine on the heel. But now implementing some 4K, 5K runs and just seeing if I gradually build up my mileage again, if it has any impact on the morning soreness and morning stiffness. And as I've built up from 4K to 6K at the moment, there's been no change. It's still stated about a one out of 10. If anything, some mornings it's zero and it'll only uh, last about five minutes. So those metrics is uh, very important to know whether I'm tolerating what I'm putting my body through the day before. So just following our universal principles from season one of our podcast and just uh, implementing those. I did also say that I'd start some gastrocnemius and soleus calf strengthening exercises, which I started about um, five days ago. I was doing calf raises, holding on to a 10 kilo weight and keeping my knee slightly bent and um, going up and down single leg calf raises. I'm doing about three sets or four sets of um, 10 and I seem to be losing a lot of power after 10. So I think that's a pretty good range for me at the moment with single leg and the 10 kilo weight. Um, And I haven't really implemented a lot of calf work in the past and so from what I know and what I've been learning on this podcast and interviewing a lot of experts, that seems to be what I need to implement. It seems to be my weak length because I have had um, a couple of calf stiffness, soreness, tightness, a couple of very mild strains in the past six months. So recognizing that and just implementing something and it's feeling really good. My calves actually feel a lot better now after implementing a couple of those, even after just two attempts now. So um, all positive. Hopefully I can start building up that and um, building up the strength. Okay, uh, enough about me. Let's move on to our interview with Benoit talking about all things lateral hip pain. Benoit, uh, thanks for coming on. I've been following you on social media for a very long time now and um, had the chance to experience your online course, which we'll discuss in a second. But uh, let's get started. Thanks for coming on to the podcast. Thanks, Bri, for uh, the kind invitation. I've been listening to your uh, previous podcast and all the top uh, speakers you've brought in. So I've picked up a few things from a previous podcast and uh, thanks for having me. 
You're very welcome. Thank you very much. Uh, let's start off with uh, talking about your career and particularly your postgrad pursuits and why you decided to dive into the special interest of the hip and groin. Yeah, I'm, I'm a physio based in London, so we've got a bit of a split role. So I work a few days in private practice in central London. I also do a um, few days in the NHS National Health Service as an advanced practitioner as well, working with orthopedics and a &E. um, I started into lower limb, mainly hip and groin in the last 10 years. So one of my previous jobs where I started, we were getting a lot of recreational runners. And obviously you deal with your, your straightforward injuries like your uh, petlefemoral runner's knee and Achilles tendon. We had, you know, major difficulty with the hip and groin. So I found like at that, you're talking about like 10 to 12 years ago, there was not much of literature and uh, many of these conditions used to be stubborn. So that's what really got me involved. And uh, what I found was conditions like hip impingement, uh, you know, hip tendons, they, although they are less common than knee injuries, they were more persistent. Uh, I looked at the literature, there was not much really going on. So I thought that was a great area to get involved and uh, around that time a couple of things also happened which made me interest so one of my uh, best friend also had uh, you know hip pain which which we none of us could pick it up and then he later developed avascular necrosis which is sort of uh, quite a serious condition and actually had a hip replacement one of my colleagues also had a quite other labral pathology so this sort of few instances happened at the same time, which made me think that it's a bit more complex than I thought. Um, and um, there's not really much people to help me. So I thought this is a great area to get involved. And I was lucky I had a few links with a few surgeons who were in that, uh, in that specialty. So I spent some time with them, uh, did a bit of work with them as well. And slowly, like with anything else, you start with a problem. And um, there was, I generally found, you know, there was a lot of excellent physios for low back pain, shoulders, knees whereas with the hip and groin it was always considered to be like an enigma like a black box um, it's rightly called as the bermuda triangle in sports medicine so um, i like that sort of challenge where uh, obviously the first two three years i was scratching my head i really didn't know what i was doing but then like slowly slowly the puzzle i wouldn't say i'm an expert but i i can say i'm a specialist in that area because i see purely i see the numbers and uh, you're always learning more and more. So I would say it's, it's as complex as the back or the shoulders. And um, it's sort of, um, and definitely we need more, more physios to be involved in that area because uh, there's a lot as therapists we can do to help these patients. And most of the patients I see, they go around in circles, um, getting different diagnosis um, and then frustrated. So pretty much all my patients I see, I have at least seen two, three physios and they usually have symptoms more than a year. So I like that sort of third opinion, fourth opinion, where they come to me and it's more like a detective work for me. So I like the complexities which come across to that and um, it gets me thinking. So, so yeah, so it was not an intentional thing, but I'm definitely enjoying it and I'm doing it for 10 years plus. So clearly things are working in some way. Yeah, fantastic. It's good to hear. And um, with that said, hearing that there's no better person that I wanted to talk to about this topic, which... We're going to talk around lateral hip pain and glute strengthening, which I'm excited to dive into. And I guess the first question I have is um, when it comes to runners getting lateral hip pain, uh, what might be the primary common cause for this sort of symptom developing? Yeah. So I think like, you know, 
when you're dealing with a complex area, like, you know, we all would agree that most of the reasons why we get running injuries is uh, multifactorial. It's just not as simple as saying like you're weak, you know, you've got the wrong shoes or you're running too much. Your body is a bit more complex than that. So uh, it's fair to say that most running injuries are multifactorial. It's a combination of different things. So I just, I generally look at running injuries in like in this three sort of big uh, areas, for example, like training errors, intrinsic factors, and also some eccentric factors. So training errors by far is the most common. 70 to 80% of most running injuries is because of uh, training errors. So we all know that it's too much too soon, too much of speed work. Somebody who's running three days is now running five days or doing a lot of uh, you know, incline work, uh, making rapid change, or sometimes there's a change in lifestyle. You know, the sleep is less, uh, stress uh, contribution. So I think it's very rare to see a runner getting a running injury without some form of training errors. So that is something we need. That's why a detailed history, and that's true for hip, knee, or foot and ankles. The hip is no different. So I guess taking a detailed history on how much, how many days they're training, um, and also looking into you know non-running element as well, uh, whether they made any rapid changes. So that's going to be the same. Specifically, when you look into intrinsic factors, so what I mean by intrinsic, that's something which is related to the individual. For example, age. We know that the older we get, we are more likely to, we are talking about from 40, 45 plus, we are more likely to get tendon-related injuries because I guess the aging affects your uh, tendon health. And another factor is uh, hormonal factors. We know that women, uh, one of the biggest groups which get lateral hip pain is women. It's four is to one. And there is uh, some evidence showing that hormonal effect like low estrogen, pre and uh, you know, perimenopausal women are more likely. So we know that estrogen is really important for um, tendon health. So those changes can be also be a factor. And also one of the biggest risk factors for any injury, running related injury is previous injury. If they had a previous injury on that same side before. And there are some structural factors like, you know, white pelvis, uh, you know, certain femoral, you know, neck shaft angles. So I don't really dwell on, too much on that because you can't really change those things. Um, and then when you look into specific, you know, factors like, you know, strength deficits have been shown to be a factor as well, especially weakness of your uh, hip abductors, external rotators, trunk stability. And there might be also be a role for, uh, uh, you know, your uh, running mechanics. So commonly I find with this group with, who come with lateral hip pain, they might have what I call the medial collapse mechanics. So excessive hip adduction, you know, the knees touching each other, crossover gait. So to make it quite simple, you know, the typical profile I would see is a 40 plus, 40 to 45 plus female, um, you know, who's usually started running uh, or who started running more, who is normally done 10K, now is going for the first half marathon, uh, pushing too much or trying to do more miles or more speed or more incline. Um, and then usually they get a bit of a niggle. Um, and, uh, you know, runners usually come to me because, uh, not because of pain, it's because when they can't do the mileage they want or it's it's affecting their life. So one of the things I always ask my runners is, okay, you had it for eight months. What made you to come now rather than eight months ago? And usually they'll say is uh, before I could run and it was a bit sore for five, six hours. And now I'm limping for two days. You know, or I can't do the mileage I want, or another common reason is, see, when I lie on the side, I can't sleep. It's affecting my day-to-day -day life. I can't play with the kids. You know, I'm just limping like an old person. 
So this is sort of the reasons where people could, because runners are very good at taking pain. And it's part of being a good runner is you expect a bit of pain, especially around your glutes. But it's only when it starts affecting the training or the life, like sitting, lying on the side, walking, or they can't train. That's when they seek help. So that's sometimes a big major issues with runners is most of the time they come a bit too late and, uh, and obviously we need more rehab. So I always say to my runners, if, if your symptoms are going more than six weeks, uh, obviously you don't have to come to us for every niggles, but if you're not improving in six weeks, then maybe it's a good idea to check you know, with a healthcare professional for earlier because you might only need one or two sessions. If you come back after, many of my patients come back after two years, three years, and it takes a long time to recover because a lot of things also develop. So I think, you know, I think six weeks is fair enough to sort of wait. But if you're not improving, it's always good to seek help. So obviously, it's a lot of things involved here. So, but generally, uh, a training errors, certain internal factors like your age, gender, uh, hormonal variation, and obviously some strength deficits or running and retraining. So it's it's never in my in my experience, it's never because of one reason. It's it's not as simple as saying, oh, you got weak hips or your hamstring is tight. It's not as simple as that. It's always always a combination of different things. Yeah, and, then and I think if you have a different population, like I like to say it's usually triggered with training errors and what injury arises will depend on kind of your weakest link. And yeah. let's just say like an early, uh, let's just say a young female runner, they might mm. be able to tolerate some higher hip loads, but if they overdo their training, then their weakest link might be like the knee joint and they might develop knee pain. But sometimes maybe someone who, or maybe the same runner who has the same running style and they're 30 years older might yeah. have the same training error, but their weakest point is now the hips due yeah. to maybe a loss in hip strength or maybe the hormones, maybe just age and just like the, how the tendons can tolerate up around the hip that all changes. And then they experience the same training error, but develop hip pain instead. Um, yeah. Is there. That's, that's nicely put. I think I might add a few things. That is, this is, I think, you know, I've always try to battle with my idea of the combination of factors, which leads to injuries. So hundred percent agree with you that the major, you know, that tipping point is the training errors, but in my experience, and I think the literature will also support me is there are four key factors which sort of will determine what injuries you're getting. I think number one is, I would say the most important is previous injury. We know that from the literature, you know, uh, if you had a hip problems before, you're more likely to damage your hip again, if it's a knee. And the second is experience. So not all runners are the same. So if you're a 10K runner, half marathon, that's going to be different. And then the age and the gender. So those four factors, previous injuries, your experience in running, your age and gender, that four interacts with your training errors and then it produces that injury. So I think it's that co combination of... So like you and me, we could train, we could have training errors, but I will get a knee injury and you might get an Achilles injury because for me, I already have knee pain my my weakness is my knee. I had four surgeries. So every time I do overtraining, it's always my knees which hurt. Uh, whereas somebody else, it could be different. So it's knowing. So that's why the history of that sort of uh, experience, what's the level they're doing, what's injuries they had, you can sort of predict what they're more likely to get. Yeah, true. Very well said. Is like, I kind of think similar to a proximal hamstring tendinopathy or like a just quickly chiming in here to let you scholars know, I have just updated my five-day injury prevention challenge. 
This is one email per day for five days, learning new concepts and diving into the science on how you can reduce your risk of injury. The sign up link is in the show notes, so fill in your details and I'll be waiting for you in email number one tomorrow. Plantar fasciitis. Sometimes a pain might get triggered by running and mm. it's caused by running, but then the aggravation and the irritation starts to affect everyday life, just generally sitting, getting up, moving around. Um, because I see that a lot with, say, hamstring tendinopathies, all of a sudden their sitting becomes an issue or plantar fasciitis all of a sudden, like just standing mm. still becomes an issue. Once someone does have lateral hip pain, and let's just say it is triggered by those multitude of factors that you're explaining. Is there anything that we need to look at that we need to modify or avoid doing in our day-to-day life once it is irritated? Yeah. So I think the key thing is most of the time from my experiences, they come to me because of three, four reasons. One is uh, typical running is they can't do what they want because the mileage is can't be done. They have to stop. So usually by the t- they come to me, they'll stop doing the hills. They start doing the speed because they realize that it's making them worse. So that is usually when they come to me and they also come to me when it's affecting the sleep. So the sleep is getting affected and also uh, it's starting affecting their daily life, like walking and limping. So I think at this stage, what we want to do is sort of, uh, they're already sensitized. So one one thing, the first part of treatment is not making it worse. So we need to really desensitize the region. So what I find is sometimes people go on the internet and they look at you know YouTube and say like, okay, let's stretch the tendons. Let's do foam rolling around the greater trochanter. And uh, we know that with tendons, you know, tendons, especially at uh, pathological tendinopathy, you know, the stretching and rubbing it, poking on the tendon is not, uh, it's not a muscle. So that might feel good for that first half an hour or more, but a lot of times you feel like the patient inadvertently make it worse. So first thing I'll say is to stop all the spoking business, you know, rubbing on the bone. If we, if you want to use foam roller, I'm totally fine as long as they use it on the muscles. You know, they can use it on the TFL or hamstrings. You know, but directly rubbing on the tendon usually makes it worse. Second thing is stretching. So they sometimes they feel like they have to stretch it out and that'll be better. So they do a lot of you know, gluteal stretches, cross body stretches and things like that. So, and other things which I usually find, which I have to stop is uh, because they're not able to run so much. They, so they go to online classes and look at, uh, you know, there are so many hit classes now, especially with lockdown. So they end up doing a lot of hit training, a lot of plyometrics and jumping. And we know the plyometrics is excellent for uh, building strength and bone health. But when you have tendon issues, especially in that painful stage, that can irritate uh, things as well. So, so uh, main thing I stop is that sort of rubbing on the bone, you know, the foam rolling on the bone, stretching, uh, hit training is a big one. And the other one, important one, which I didn't really, I missed for about eight years, which I picked up in the last two years is you get these patients who will do everything you say, but they won't get better at all. And I was hacking my head, like what's, what's wrong? One of the things I picked up is the gluteal tendons are very, very sensitive to your walking distance. So a lot of these patients I see in London, they walk the dogs for two, three hours and they do a lot of other stuff. So one of the things I've changed over my practice is with all my patients, I monitor how many steps they're doing in a, in a day. So a lot of my patients I find like, you know, one day they're doing like 8,000, the weekend they're doing like 28,000, 30,000, and then they flare up and they, they, they say to me, I've, done, I've not done anything new. So that's something I've recently noted is, monitoring how much we don't need to be perfect, but at least you need to have an eyeball figure. So sometimes what I make with this patient is to reduce their walking with the dogs or 
the long hikes they do in the weekend. So I'll give them a clear limit, like saying like, do only under 12,000 or keep it under 15,000. Uh, or uh, if you're walking two hours, maybe keep it for 30 minutes. So I find that makes a big difference as well. So those are the three, four things is the stretching, the rubbing, you know, all that sort of, uh, you know, direct irritation, um, uh, stopping the hit training uh, that, uh, you, although you might get this endorphins, which is a feel good factors when you do endorphin, but then later it just becomes more sore. And also having some idea to uh, manage your uh, total load going through the body you know, what else on that. So, so that's why having that close relationship with the therapist is really important. So you need to, for me, I don't treat the runner, I treat the person and the lifestyle. So I need to know exactly what they're doing, everything. So a lot of runners will tell you about running, but they won't tell you everything else they're doing. So I'm interested in what they're doing with the hit classes. Are they doing the walks, uh, other stuff as well. So it's, we need to really dig in the whole lifestyle. Very good. And a lot of stuff to unpack there. You did mention uh, sleeping can sometimes become uh, irritable and sometimes people can lose sleep because of pain. And I know from my experience, sometimes uh, sitting in certain scenarios can be quite irritating. Have you educated to your clients any ways to modify your sleeping or your sitting in order to reduce the level of irritation? Yeah. So I think the sleep is because as we know, all healing happens your growth hormone and all the hormones are released in deep sleep. So if you're one of the things I've noticed from my experience is you can give them the best rehab, but if your sleep is poor, you don't really get the best benefits. All the magic happens in the body when you sleep, especially in deep sleep. So, um, so I think the key thing is obviously avoiding the direct irritation on that. So avoid lying on the side. Sometimes I advise them to use a pillow to prevent that excessive adduction. One of the things I say while they're sitting is during the days, always keep the hips two inches higher than the knees. So, I always, uh, always ask my hip patients not to use low seats, low sofas, like, you know, you get some sports type cars and things like that. So even when they're sitting in the office, sitting at home, a uh, simple rule is always keep the hips two inches higher than the knees, you know, take that effort, you know, not, not try to be curved up on that. And every 30 to 40 minutes, give a break, put like something on your timer. So, and you just, you can stand up, do some calf races or some uh, you know, uh, some mini squats or something just to get activation. So, yeah, so really I'm interested in the sitting posture during the day. We have to be careful not to say that we are damaging the tendons by sitting. The way I say to is we don't want to irritate and sensitize the tendon. So, because once you get sensitized, then you don't get the full benefits of the exercise. So there's no point taking your pain to eight out of 10 when we can sort of make those changes. So the big changes I find is making the effect on the chairs, while sleeping, putting like a cushion on the sides and also, you know, avoid lying on the side as well. In very rare cases, so suppose a patient is waking up two, three times and they can't sleep. A short course of five to seven days taking some anti-inflammatory, uh, I don't see any harm purely to decent, to bring it down. You know, if, if somebody is waking up two, three times. So there's two types of pain I see. One is when they get pain, when they lie on the side, and they feel a bit sore, that's different than somebody who really wakes up. So somebody who really has to wake up and they you know, can't go to bed. In those cases, a week or two of short-term anti-inflammatory, I can't see any harm to just to break that sort of. And another thing which seems to work in that phase is getting them into hydro pool, you know, a little bit of uh, water-based exercises, getting them into low impact exercise like cross trainer. So we, the fundamental thing is, you know, the more 
when you start as a physio, you realize, you think like exercise is going to fix everything, but then you realize the lifestyle factors is more important, like your recovery, your sleep, your psychosocial factors. So for me, I think if you don't nail the sleep element, you're not going to get much outcomes with, with your rehab. So getting that sleep quality and also the pain levels has to be controlled in the initial stages. Uh, the exercise is the easy bit, in my opinion. So if you go, if you go, if you go uh, get those factors, like controlling your pain, controlling your symptoms, getting the sleep, then your body will feel better, then it's much easier to push into the next phase. Very well said. I should probably explain as well. So when it comes to <clears throat> modifying these activities, like you're saying, where we're trying to, um, in the short term, eliminate or reduce the level of compression. And when, when someone feels like the side of their hips and you get that, um, that bony kind of prominence that sticks out, what the, do- what the tendon does is wrap around that. And very similar to like a hamstring tendon, as it attaches up onto the sitting bone, it can be subject to compression if your knee is in or if your leg is in a certain position. And sometimes when the tendon is already a little bit irritated, it won't like being compressed in that position for a long period of time. And so what we're trying to do in this irritated state is trying to offload it slightly so that it can tolerate things like sitting for long periods of time or sleeping in bed and uh, make sure that in the long term, you're still allowed to compress the tendon. But in this current state of irritability, we want to try and modify things to offload it and then slowly, I guess, train or strengthen the tendon to start tolerating more and more levels of compression. And that way we can go back to um, normal function without these modifications. Is that, uh, would you want to add anything to that? Yeah, you know, that's nicely said because the key thing is what we don't want to say is, see, tendons compression happens all the time. Like, you know, humans, we are used to, you know, nobody is having the perfect gait. We, we go into adduction. We, you know, like coming from my South Indian background, uh, we squat, we cross the legs all the time. You know, that's sort of part of human, you know, repertoire of movement. So I think we have to be careful to say like, the body can't manage compression. That's part of the healthy tendon. But it's like, you know, when it's sort of decent, when it's sensitized, the pain is high, it's not doing the thing. So it's quite simple way of looking at it is when you're in too much of pain, it's not doing the things to make it worse. And then eventually, once it's strong, your body should be able to handle all the things, you know, uh, you know, compression, crossover, you know, direct pressure on the side. So uh, it's not harmful, definitely in the long term. But initially, it makes sense to reduce the things which irritate the symptoms because one of the things with tendons is it's, it's a very slow thing to recover, but it's very easy to. So I, I say to my patients, what you build in two months, you can wreck it in one session. So for example, like you, you have somebody with an Achilles tendon, you know, you're, you're making good progress, you you know, rehabbing just one random session of running, sprinting on sand will put you back by two months. So just one trigger. So that's the really important. They can easily be triggered by, and you can easily undo months of training. So it's very slow to recover, but very quick to aggravate. So that's the annoying thing with tendencies is, uh, you know, you don't want to undo all the good work you've done just by bad, you know, you don't make a great body in one session, but you can really cause a lot of uh, irritation by one bad session. So that's why, you know, sometimes I get patients who are doing so well, and then they feel fantastic on one day and without checking with me, they just do one speed session on a hill, uphill. And then they're back by one month. So that's why, you know, uh, sometimes feeling you're, uh, how you're feeling is not a good indicator whether you're ready. So that's why you need to be very honest with your therapist to know whether you're ready for that stage. 
So, uh, and, uh, you know, a very knowledgeable therapist will, t will, will tell you the things not to do. So I think that's why you, you want to be very clear is the things not to do, which are more important than the things to do. So especially with tendons, I find the speed element is a big problem. And specifically with hip, one of the things which I will stop for a long, long time with hips is uphill, you know, hill running. Hill running is the biggest trigger for hips. It's a bit different from knees, whereas downhill running is more, whereas hip, uh, hip uphill running is more. So generally for a period of eight to 12 weeks, I'll stop all type of hill training. And then gradually when I feel it's ready. So it's, I think it's the, um, the trick of physiotherapy and rehab is not the exercises in my opinion, is how to put it together, the package. That's the hard bit, you know, how to sort of sequence things together. And that's where, because I think, you know, to be honest, you can go on the internet and you can, you can get all the best exercises. I don't have to tell you what's the best exercises, but is how to put it together, how to sequence it with the right advice. And that's where I think a good professional comes in mind. You know, it's not really the, people always ask me, what are the top 10 exercises? I don't have any problem. I can tell you the top 10 easily, but how do you put together? That's where the expertise comes in. Yeah. And I guess uh, a runner might interpret that they're doing the wrong exercise if they're not putting all the pieces together and say, look, I'm doing this exercise. It's not working. Um, maybe I need to do something else when in fact you are doing the right exercises and you are doing the right things, but you're just not combining, uh, like you said, all those pieces to the puzzle and putting it all together. Yeah, that's the fun bit with the runners is because there are at least a lot of variables which needs to come together. That's why you will never get bored treating runners. You know, it's a combination of your, you know, your training errors, your strength deficits, your gait analysis, your running pattern, your shoes, your recovery. So there's so many little facets which uh, can really, uh, and that's where, you know, when I started initially, I was just looking at the strength element. I didn't really care much about the training load. And then I focus on the training load. Then, uh, then I started looking at the recovery. Then I start looking at the shoes. So there's a lot of little, little, little areas where we need to put it together. And then, obviously, as a therapist, uh, uh, you know, a bit is trial and error. But with experience, you know what are the what I call the big rocks. You know, so the big rocks is definitely your training errors and your recovery, which you have to address and getting those pain under control. And the strength and conditioning, in my opinion, is fairly straightforward once you address those and then you can build up their capacity from then on. I'm curious to know your thoughts. Uh, there's a few things like if someone has hip pain and they um, talk to me about it and they go through their experience with um, a previous health, like a coach or another health professional, they usually say one of two things. One, they say their glutes aren't firing or they've been told that their glutes aren't firing. And two, mm -hmm. they've been told that they have uh, ITB tightness. And I just wanted to pick your brain a little bit and ask sort of what do we currently know about these two terms? And we'll probably yeah. start with the glutes not firing because yeah. I hear that probably more often. Yeah, I think uh, it's same here in London as well. Another thing I, I hear also, my, uh, my hip flexors are tight as well. You know, that's something I hear. My hips are tight, uh, ITB. So I think the glutes are firing is something which, I see, actually, if you look at studies, um, specifically from the group, from Stuart McGill group, so they did a study where they looked at people with pain, with hip pathology. And what they found out was, which was quite surprising, is the people with pain with hip, actually the, the firing is more than people without pain. So in fact, you, you, when you have pain, you, you, you know, your brain really you know, gets aggravated by the pain and it starts firing left and right. In fact, you fire more. What is a fair statement would be is my, my glutes are weak or I've got weakness or I've got strength deficits. That's a fair statement. When you say like my glutes are firing and people do, you know, uh, like old paradigm, they, they'll keep the hands on the glutes and the hamstring and say, oh, your glutes 
uh, are firing less than your hamstrings. It's a bit weak. So that's why one of the things, uh, you know, if you're dealing with athletic population, um, you know, like runners and um, uh, other hip patients, one of the things I feel like, you know, therapists, which makes a big difference is using a handle dynamometer. So that's something I've been using for the last five, six years. So one of the first things I do when a patient comes in is to assess their strength. So I'll sort of, uh, you know, put them in a sideline, check their hip abductor strength. So, uh, and we got data to know like what's the normal in based on kilo, you know, kilograms. So that's one of things I find it useful is to give them the exact number and say, this is the number I expect. That's on your left side, which is a good side. You're about 20% weaker. And people like that, you know, sort of objective data. So that's one of the benefits of the face-to-face -face element is you can be a bit more precise. But the, from a scientific point of view, there's no sort of evidence that show that glutes are not firing really. You know, a more accurate statement would be is, you know, I've got weakness in my glutes, which, which can be checked objectively. Another thing is the ITB tightness. So for a long time, you know, including myself, we used the OBA test for ITB tightness, which is the way to test ITB. And in fact, uh, cadaveric studies have shown like, you know, the tightness has nothing to do with the OBA test. Like, in fact, you know, uh, it doesn't have any relevance with the tightness because it's a fascia and it's quite stronger than steel. So the the element of ITB, if you look at, if the, the current thing of ITB is, it's more like a spring, like a tendon. So it, it sort of gets the energy recoil and gets you back when you're running. So uh, if you look at histological and anatomical studies, there is no direct evidence showing that your ITB tightness leads to that. So, so a lot of these things have been historically been sold for a long time. And I don't think it really helps the runner or the therapist because one, we can't stretch the ITB. You can do all foam rolling, but you know, you can't really make any structural changes. And the second thing is the firing, you know, if you don't have EMG electrodes, you're not really going to do. So I think <laughs> it's something, you know, I hear all the time. So the, the thing, you know, which working with runners is as therapists, we have to be very careful not to dismiss sort of uh, these things because they've been told and they believe that. So, I don't really spend ages trying to fight their uh, thing. I try to, you know, change their narrative and say, okay, that's great. You've been told by somebody that's weak. Okay, let's just, let's check your strength. Um, or even if they don't, even if you're doing a telehealth, I'll ask them to, for example, go to the gym and uh, do a cable machine on hip abduction and to see their 10 rep max or 8 rep max on hip abduction. So for example, on the unaffected side, they can do like uh, uh, 10 kilos on the affected side, they can do only three kilos. So I'm a big believer of objective data, even a simple things like a leg press, you know, checking the leg press, a 10 rep max on the affected side, a hip abduction or a, a machine. So th those things are more useful. Uh, you know, what you measure, you can change. So it's always useful to, you know, think either like a handle dynamometer or a gym equipment. You don't need a handle dynamometer, but you need to have some data because then we can make those changes really, you know? So I don't dismiss those statements because sometimes they believe that and, you know, it'll lead to uh, unnecessary argument. I don't want to be involved in a confrontation, but at a later stage, I will challenge them and say like, in fact, I might not do that on session one, but later I will say there's not really much evidence to show that it's nothing to the firing or tight hip flexes. And one of the things with, with the tight hip flexes is, which I've known from patients, when you have chronic hip pain, a lot of patients have this subjective feeling of tightness. Mm. So that's something I've noticed. They feel like something has to be released, that something has to be released. So I find that's a common uh, complaint is they feel like something is blocking them. And I find it's a more a pain thing. Once that's sort of the strength element, and you see that in calf as well. People who have weak calves who have that deficits feel they need to stretch it out. They need to do dry kneeling. I see a lot of patients getting mindless sessions of endless sessions of dry needling into the hips. And in fact, what they need is a good, you know, proper strength and conditioning program. And their 
and their tightness disappears. So, so sometimes when you feel tight, in fact, that's when you need to strengthen it. And your body is telling you to make it stronger rather than, rather than doing stretch it and poking needles into it. Yeah, very good. I often think like the, the words we use as therapists can be very powerful and the, the whole glutes not firing is a very disempowering language because you can't really do much about it if they're not really firing. But like you were saying, if you can change that narrative and say the tendons actually just got strength deficits and what we know about rehab and um, you know building up that capacity, what we're doing is trying to raise that tendons capacity to tolerate the load that we're putting it through. And that would be yeah. whatever running loads or loads throughout the day or the walking, you know, um, 30,000 steps, that kind of thing, and gives them something to work towards. And if, like you're saying, if you have those handheld dynamometers and you can see the strength deficits compared to the other side, well, that's a goal you can work on. It's empowering the the runner and it's giving them um, small steps to work on, which I really, really like. And like you said, with the ITB tightness, the actual fascia itself is way too rigid in order to create any sort of stretch. And in fact, if you were trying to stretch out your ITB, we're sort of compressing that tendon over the, the hip bone, which we've already discussed before might not be as advantageous, but might just feel good in the moment, feel like you're kind of getting in that area, which, um, is kind of human nature for people to do, like you said, with a calf or I see it a lot with um, <clears throat> other issues around the hip and around the knee or high hamstring stuff. People love to stretch their high hamstring tendinopathies because it kind of feels good in the moment. But yeah, I'm glad we can clear that up. Um, it's, it's very well put and very well said on your behalf. Is there, <clears throat> as we move on to like rehab exercises do you have any um particular go-to ones in the early phases of lateral hip pain so i think when you know when we do an initial assessment based on the history and the severity of symptoms i think the you know for me like a lot of times you hear especially on social media that you start with isometrics and then you go into isotonics for me the starting point is always fluid it, it's entirely based on your uh, presentation and your severity. I don't uh, start everyone with the same, you know, exercises. So first is to find the starting point where you think based on the irritability, if, if you got, if you get a runner who's already running 30, 40 minutes, then you get another runner who stopped running. Obviously they'll be very different from you where you start. So when we talk about generally with uh, uh, gluteal tendinopathy, the, you've got a variety of options really. So, for very sore patients, I might start with a simple isometric option with a simple band, either in supine or in sideline, you know, trying to see their recruitment and how can they tolerate it. Definitely, there'll be a bridge option, you know, uh, start with your bilateral bridge, single leg bridge. And definitely, we want to load your hip abductors and external rotators. So you could start with a simple sideline hip abduction. You can add some ankle weights, then progress into standing, then progress them, them into band walks. One of the things which you see a lot of experts, if you look at experts like Alison Grimaldi and other things, they, what I find is the clam exercise, you know, I have nothing against the clam exercise, but for, for somebody who specializes in hips, for me, the clam is like a sideline faber. The faber is sort of a, a test we use uh, for hip patient and it irritates. So there's nothing wrong with the clam, but what I find is with a lot of this patient that irritates their hips and the more and more because of the position it is in. So that's one of the exercises which I don't really do with my hip patients. I use the clamp for other, uh, suppose you get a runner with knee pain, I'll use the clamps. But all my hip patients who come to me, whether it's a proximal or lateral hip or FIS syndrome, I generally don't use the, the clamps because it's just the position irritates them. Um, and then one of the things which you can progress 
with this hip patient is contralateral loading. So and it's even a simple exercise like a split squat, uh, putting a weight on the opposite side revs up your activation massively on your, on your glutes. And then obviously you're going to progress them into more functional uh, stuff like your gym stuff, uh, you know, your leg press, uh, your deadlift pattern. And one of the things which is commonly ignored in this group I find is plyometrics. So we want to get that sort of uh, ability to handle that speed element. So I'll start with a simple lateral hop. And the, what do you find is the patients I see usually come after one or two years, they usually will have some other deficits. So common deficits you see in this group are, uh, especially if it's a female, it trunk is trunk weakness, uh, you know, lateral trunk. So I'll use a lot of uh, lateral trunk stability work, you know, your uh, side plank, your cable chops, uh, your medicine ball throws, things like that. And uh, uh, another thing you'll see is either a quad deficit or a calf deficit. So the key thing is obviously it's a hip problem, but we need to think beyond that. So a lot of patients will just have the hip, but most of them will also have either a trunk weakness or a cord weakness or a calf weakness. So that's why your assessment is really important. So for me, it's addressing the whole package uh, and then, you know, slowly getting them back into that running phase. Okay, fantastic. So you've mentioned as early kind of stage, we're looking at sideline band work or something to that effect, maybe some ankle weights, maybe putting that in there, um, some variation of a bridge exercise. And I guess if it is irritable, we're kind of doing an outer range. So we're avoiding compression until it's you're able to tolerate it. And then we're progressing to um, things a bit more strong, maybe doing some band work in standing and doing some side steps in standing and then eventually progressing to something that's a bit more plyometric and something that's incorporating the trunk stability. And we're looking at hopping, we're looking at deadlifts, we're looking at um, a lot more functional based movements. So I think the key thing with tendon rehab, this is hip is no different, is giving them a clear uh, uh, pain monitoring scale. So generally, I'm more than happy for them to have four out of 10 pain while they're doing it. I'm more concerned with their 24 hour response, even if it goes to five out of 10, but 24 hours later, the next day, it's not too sore. Uh, uh, that's the most important thing. So, the, you know, a lot of times patients expect it to be pain-free. In fact, a bit of pain is a good thing. So as long as we let them know that uh, having a bit of pain while exercising is not, to, is not likely to cause any damage, they feel empowered and maybe they feel that they heard it for the first time. So with tendons, a bit of pain, um, you know, some people, they like the pain score. You know, I sort of keep it around three to five. Some people, you know, it's mild to moderate. The most important thing is they should not flare up 24 hours after. So as long as we give them a clear, and even if they flare up, it doesn't mean they've damaged it. It means that what they've done was too much. So we just need to back off a little bit and then start again. So with uh, the thing with therapy is it's part art, part science. So a lot of things, even with my experience, it's trial and error. You know, we don't get the answers right. Sometimes things flare up. So it's not to worry. We just back down and then restart again. So uh, all experienced therapists sometimes flare up patients. I do that every time. So as long as we, we inform people, it's normal. Uh, getting a flare up is part of the recovery. I've not seen anyone recover totally without a flare up. You know, you expect one or two flare ups on the way. As long as, and another big, uh, you know, not advice, but sort of a key message I, I say to my patients with tendon, whether it's a proximal hamstring or lateral hip is, Always expect improvement month by month, month by month. You're going to have some good weeks. You're going to have not so good weeks. But, you know, um, October will be better than September. November will be better than October. Uh, so, you know, don't expect week by week improvement. Tendons are very, very slow to recover and have. So every month you will have some slight improvement. 
And if you look at the literature, you know, you're looking at at least three to four months or five months for that sort of to make a substantial improvement as well. So it's having the patience and expecting a few setbacks on the way. Uh, so this is something which we want to be very clear on day one, giving them a pain monitoring scale, you know, giving them an idea on the pain monitoring scale. Number two, explaining the element of the longevity, how long it takes. You know, people expect it's going to be fixed in two weeks. It's not. So generally I say it's three to five months. And the third thing is expecting flare-ups as part of recovery. It's never a linear progression. So those are the three key messages which we want to be very clear on day one. I'm glad that you lay out those expectations for your patients as well because sometimes that can often be missed with health professionals and it's good for the the runner to know as well. I did have... so we've, kind of answered the um, the strength exercise component really well. And I, I guess I've written down here any stretches that you did recommend. And I think we've discussed that a little bit before, but I thought I might ask a listener question um, comes in from Mel and she says, is there any recommendations on how to stretch the glutes uh, because she's getting knee pain? And she said she'll do things like a pigeon stretch or other glute stretches where she doesn't feel stretching in the hip at all, but has pressure built up in the knee um so would you be well can you first explain what you think might be going on there yeah so i think what you find is sometimes a lot of you know if you look at the fibers of the glute med this is the interesting thing is if you look at the orthopedic research the glute med tendon gtps is also known as the great mimicker so if you look at the anterior fibers sometimes they can radiate to the to the groin and sometimes it can radiate to the buttock region as well especially with posterior fibers so even with your normal uh, lateral hip the lateral tendon you can have a varied presentation some people it's just on the side in some people it just goes a little bit toward the groin and you might think it's a hip problem but it's not really a hip joint it's a ruffle pattern and some people it goes towards the preformis deep gluteal region as well so a lot of times you might have associated a little bit of the small rotatory, uh, rotatory muscles the six muscles you might have associated you know issues with tissue length so if you do feel tightness around that region you know stretching that i don't see any harm as long as you're not bringing them into too much of hip adduction you're not crossing over and another group i find especially men who develop this problem if they are like 45 50 plus they one of the things you see men lose as they get older uh, especially you know runners is a lack of hip extension it seems to be something which happens with age uh, slightly more common in men and that getting that hip extension is really important for recruitment of your glutes. So sometimes I do incorporate some hip, uh, you know, dynamic hip mobility exercises to improve hip extension. And one of the things which we forget is eccentric exercises are really good to improve muscle length. So even if you have a tight hip flexors, I rather than stretching it, I give them like a body weight Bulgarian split squat. So like a slow six seconds down, three seconds up. So you're getting the benefit of strength and also flexibility. So we sometimes forget that eccentric uh, strength exercises are also very good for improving muscle length. So a lot of my runners, I'll try to improve their hip extension, which we know is very fundamental for running. So if you want to improve that hip extension, try to reduce the pressure on the deep gluteal structure. I don't see any harm in including them, but the fundamental, you know, the, the bedrock of uh, gluteal tendon rehab should be strengthening. So this is, everything is adjunctive, whether you're doing some hands-on treatment like dry needling or taping or stretching, as long as we realize that it's adjunct, but that's not the main, you know, core treatment for this condition. And if there is knee pain going on during any of these stretches, is there any explanation for that? Is there anything we need to be worried about? Yeah. So sometimes you find the twisting, especially I find like, 
in certain, especially female, they might have sl slight element of hypermobility uh, where they might be twisting and creating a varus force. And what do you find is, especially if they're having a crossover gait pattern or some altered, th that's sort of patient where I'll definitely be interested in looking at the gait analysis. So when they have like multiple joint issues. So sometimes I find when they have the crossover gait or a medial collapse mechanics, excessive hip adduction, they get this sort of, uh, pain combined with hip and they get a little bit of around the hip and groin but also a bit on the medial aspect of the knee so definitely i would examine the knee and also look at their gait analysis or even if you're doing telehealth you can send them like a video look at their so common pattern which you see with this sort of patient with gtps is uh, what i call the medial collapse mechanics so uh, you know the knees usually they'll the runner will tell you like after running they can feel like the knees touching a bit of uh, you know the skin irritation um, and also the crossover gait as well. So that's something you want to check at a later stage because there is some link with some gait parameters with uh, with this pathology as well. So obviously the history, the training errors, the strength deficits, but definitely all runners I will have their look at their gait mechanics at one stage. Uh, might not be on session one, uh, but something you want to look at at a later stage. Okay. You've done an amazing job of like... <laughs> answering a couple of my other questions that I have written down here. And one of them being like, how do we know it's okay to start running again? And um, when, when can we sort of trust our hip? And you did mention that uh, we want to avoid hills in the early stages. We want to avoid things like speed because that would just increase the, the demand through the hip so much. And you did also mention that we want to, as long as there's not like a, a significant flare up 24 hours after a run is there any other things that you might consider or uh, factor in when it comes to um, determining if a person with lateral hip pain can start running again yeah so generally you have two types of patients who come to me one patient group is who are already running you know for example they can run 40 50 minutes but they're struggling the next day so as therapists who deal with runners you know you always want to keep them running as much as you can so let's imagine you've got a runner who is running five days a week you know scenario one who is running five days a week running around 40 minutes and she gets pain the next day and she struggles but she's keen to run so in that patient what there'll be a few changes i'll make for one I, I use a simple rule called the rule of 25, 25%. So it's pretty simple. Uh, I reduce their volume by 25% uh, straight away. So from five days, I'll get them to three days. And from 40 minutes of running, I'll get them to 20, 25 minutes. And then I'll totally stop the speed and, um, and the hills uh, and ask them to keep the pain around three out of 10 or four out of 10 when they run. And that might work in that group of patients where uh, I don't want to stop. Uh, you know, Ideally, you don't want to totally stop running in, in many runners because... A lot of runners use running as a psychological tool and for mental health. Uh, it's like it's like the way I explain to when I do my courses is like to other physios is if somebody is on antidepressant tablets, you won't ask them to stop totally just because you're doing some physiotherapy. You know, so the same thing with running, you won't ask them to stop total running just because you feel it's necessary. So I'm always wary of stopping running totally in a lot of patients because it's sort of it's a very important for them in their lifestyle and mental health so first my my first job is always try to modify the provocative activities that can be changed now we got a patient b who comes to me uh, where she stopped she stopped running for three weeks uh, because she's getting night pain so there is only a few instances where i'll stop running one is uh, you know severe night pain and limping so if somebody is limping and they can't sit for 20 30 minutes it's too irritable and they can't even walk for, the way I explained to my runner, if you can't even walk for half an hour, should you be running? In my opinion, not, 
at that time. So if they're too sore, they can't even walk for 20, 30 minutes. They, you know, they're not sleeping, they're limping, then maybe, you know, running through it is not a good option. So obviously they might need a, a week or two or three where they sort of uh, work on the managing the pain, improving the strength. So the when you get them back running, so generally I look at two, three elements. First is symptoms. First is the symptoms. Okay, can they walk for at least 20, 30 minutes? Are they sleeping okay? They definitely should not be limping. So those are the things I want to achieve. Second thing is basic ADLs and basic sort of function like you know, minimum is simple things like, can they walk for 30 minutes? Can they do 20, 30 minutes on the bike or a cross trainer or swimming or some form of cardio? And then once they can achieve that, I'll always, always start the runner back on a graded walk job program. So something like a six week program or an eight week program, like an NHS, like a coach to 5k program or something like that, getting them back slowly into that volume. And then my progression is always the same volume first, speed second, and the hills the third. So I might give them like, I'll ask them to build up the volume for six weeks and then slowly introduce some speed. One of the easiest way to get injury is to try to change more than one thing at the same time, you know, try to increase the volume and the speed at the same time. So my first job is to build up the volume. So for the first six, eight weeks, get the volume back 30 minutes, 45 minutes, whatever the distance they want, and then introduce some speed session, one or two sessions, see the response. And once the speed session is done, then get them back on the hills as long as they're not doing hills with speed. So it's that is the careful monitoring of the, those three variables is volume, speeds, and hills. So you don't want to be doing messing up with more than one at the same time. So it takes a bit of tinkering and obviously they need to be patient and it needs to be closely monitored by the therapist treating them so that we can see the feedback and go with them. So it's not, it's not like a, I've suddenly given them all clear and they can do anything they want. So it's sort of, it's, it's guided gradually. And that process can take anywhere from one month to three months. Very well said and <clears throat> covers a lot there. And I think with um, over the past couple of interviews, I've had Izzy Moore, Chris Bram, and we're talking about gait retraining and like economy and all that kind of stuff. Um, as succinctly as you can, would there be any uh, gait retraining, any technique changes, anything <clears throat> that you might consider for some of these runners so that they can return to running more effectively? Yeah, I think definitely when they get back running, especially if they're a long injury, you know, one of the common things I see is that, you know, excessive hip adduction, altered, you know, medial collapse mechanics. So one of the things I use, which has been influenced by the work of uh, Rich Wiley is looking into mirror retraining. So the place I work, we got a mirror in front. So, you know, if they are t- if the knees are touching to- together, I'll ask them to imagine they got a golf ball or a tennis ball and not to- not to touch that. So ask them not to touch where the knees are closing together or sometimes I may ask don't let your knees kiss uh, so that's sort of keeping the gap between the knees that's important and sometimes you might have a crossover gate and sometimes you might uh, ask them to do track running in the in the field where you put a line and run on the side as well so so that's the common patterns you see obviously with every you know the big ones which you always see in most runners your cadence your vertical oscillation you know those are the big ones but specifically with the gtps i'll be looking into your sort of frontal plane you know your uh, excessive hip adduction excessive hip internal rotation crossover gait those are the ones which are really relevant here and there's definitely a, a role i think people who work with gait analysis do understand the quality of evidence is is not we're not talking about massive level one evidence here but for me it's an important uh, adjunct as part of the progression so i think if you look at the progression one it's first is the load management and controlling your symptoms next is your strength and conditioning addressing your deficits 
uh, then getting into the plyometric end stage. And the final sort of icing on the cake is the Gatorade training. So a lot of people jump onto the Gatorade training because it's it's hot, it's sexy, and you know it's everybody wants to do that. But for me, it's sort of the final piece of the icing on the cake. It's not something I would rush into initial stages. If we don't get the fundamentals right, if we don't manage the load, address the deficits, educate them on managing the load, then I find uh, Gatorade training doesn't really do much. Yeah, because we're not really addressing the weak links. If you have a a hip or a tendon that isn't tolerating a lot of compression or there is strength deficits and all we do is gait retraining that we're not addressing those weak links. So what you're saying is we build a foundation, we manage those loads, we build up those loads and then the uh, gait retraining, which would be like if your knees are rubbing together, then make sure we're running with a little bit wider knees or a little bit of a wider step width. And that's just the icing on the cake. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, fantastic. Um, we're going to finish up now, Benoit. Is there any other takeaways that we haven't really discussed that you think a runner would need to know around lateral hip pain? Yeah, I think one of the things is to look at the beyond bigger picture is a lot of runners think, oh, I run five, six days, I'm really fit, I don't need anything more. And uh, we know that as we get older, you know, if you look at the stats, it's a bit depressing. Like we lose around 8% of muscle strength, you know, muscle mass every year, uh, especially it's more profound after 40, 45. And uh, running and the cardio is not really a good way of training to lose that, especially bone health and uh, muscle health. And that's where the strength element is really important. And especially is more important to women because of the effect of sex hormones and uh, low estrogen. So I think you might be doing all the, you know, uh, good, um, you know, your load management. So one of the things I always insist with the patients when they discharge is at least two, twice a week, they should be doing some global strength work to get that uh, you know, overall leg strength, working on big muscles, you know, working on your, uh, you know, sort of uh, your fundamental movement patterns, your squat pattern, deadlift, your lunge, your step up. So investing that once or twice, and that's more important to this sort of what I call the master athlete, you know, that more and more uh, men and women in after 35, 40, they're picking up running, which is great because, you know, one of the best way to f- get fit, but we should not be under any illusion that running will prevent age-related, uh, you know, atrophy. Unfortunately, running doesn't do that. The only way we can do that is by uh, good, you know, proper strength and conditioning. And you don't have to go to the gym five days or six days. If you're really, if you're starting at a novice, just twice is enough. And during season maintenance, just once is enough. It's all about quality and just giving it a good go. Another thing is also, you know, uh, tendons and bones like that plyometric load. So adding a little bit of jump training once in a while. We're talking about people without symptoms here, you know, uh, once they're settled. So, you know, once a week, adding some skipping, some jump-based training is fantastic for your bone health and also for your, uh, uh, you know, uh, tendon health as well. So sometimes as runners, we need to think beyond running, you know, sometimes to be good at running, you have to do many things outside running, like your strength stuff, bit of plyometric stuff and also most runners if they're not doing an event I, I i will say to them every eight weeks take one week off do something else you know get on the bike you know do some indoor climbing go to a dance class just give your body a break you know so if you want to be in the game of running for long you have to think outside the box you know a bit of strength your body loves variety you know it craves for variety if you do the same thing again and again it gets bored you're more likely to get injured so although runners like to run seven days but if you want to keep running till your 80s and 90s one of the best way to is variety. So mixing and maxing with different things is one of the best ways. So if you look at triathletes, they get less injuries than marathons purely because they cross train. So mixing with other stuff is one of the best ways to get 
to prevent overuse injury. So, which sometimes the runners don't want to hear because they want to do more and more of running, but that doesn't seem to work on the body. You know, your body loves variety. Yeah. And that's a really nice segue into talking about your master's athlete symposium as well. Do you want to uh, just mention what that's about and what people can do if they want to sign up and start to learn more? Yeah, so we sort of uh, linked up with some of the topics. But so if you look at in uh, you know UK, definitely the the largest growing segment is the forty plus runner, both men and f- uh, women, and uh, you know it's a great way to get fit. But we also know that there are some unique injuries which happens in that age group. And one of the things, as we all know, because I'm in that group, I, I can say that injuries take longer to recover. You know, when you're younger, one of the big differences it takes much easier to recover. So we we got about sixteen experts. Uh, from all over the world and we sort of uh, put them together in this sort of uh, uh, forum which is sort of available and uh, we've created a special code which I'll I'll share with Brody so he hopefully you can put on the show notes so you can put the links there so it's I think it's sort of it's mainly targeted for runners where they can look into the running element the cyclist element so we looked into the, all aspects of uh, the master runner as well so I think it was a uh, resounding success so we had many uh, thousands of therapists attending when we had the free options and then, you know, uh, we do have that sort of uh, uh, online option, which um, I'll be happy to share the link if you're interested in looking into that sort of masterclass. And so we got in total, I think about 26 hours of content. So a lot of content packed in um, within that session. So I'm sure you'll find uh, value from that. Yeah. And if, if I can add in as well, I've attended this symposium and love the content that you guys are delivering. Some of the guests we have, um, JF Escoulier, who was actually on my podcast back in episode 52, talking about, uh, what's the right and wrong shoe to wear. There was, um, Rich Blagrove, which I had on the podcast in episode 14, talking about strength training, Lizzie Marlowe, who I will be having as a guest, uh, next week talking about, um, tip post tendinopathies, uh, obviously yourself talking about um, some great content, Brad Beer and Rich Willie, like these guys are just amazing. I love all their content. I listen to all their social media posts and content. So um, it's a really good collaborative um, point where you can just put together a course and, you know, everyone collaborates together and it comes together really nicely. So if you are interested, yes, I'll, I'll get a link or a code and add it to the show notes. If anyone is interested, um, any other social media links, if people want to learn yeah, more uh, about you. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm sort of uh, quite, you know, most days I'm on Twitter. So LinkedIn. So, you know, it's quite easy to touch base with me. So if, if anyone has any queries, uh, please, you know, you can put the queries on Twitter or LinkedIn. So I'm available for uh, any information. So as I said, it's, it's, I learn a lot from other uh, colleagues. So it's a good way to sort of, because the thing with the running is there's so many areas and so many facets. So, uh, you know, I don't think a lifetime is enough to know the whole area. So, you know, it's a fascinating area and I still enjoy it even after 10, 12 years. So, you know, there's so much to go in depth in all those areas. Brilliant. Benoit, thanks for coming on. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Run Smarter Podcast. I hope you can see the impact this content has on your future running. If you appreciate the mission this podcast is creating, it would mean a lot to me if you submit a rating and review. If you want to continue expanding your knowledge, please subscribe to the podcast and get instant notifications when a new episode comes out. If you want to learn quicker, then join our Facebook group by searching the podcast title. If you want to take your learning to the next step, including injury prevention principles, injury-specific insights, and modules to boost your running performance, 
then head to our website by searching runsmarter.online and jump into our Run Smarter online course. Once again, thank you for listening and becoming a Run Smarter scholar. And remember, knowledge is power.